Lord, as we look at your word, I pray, God, you give us insight. And Lord, by faith, understanding as to what we're looking at. Lord, thank you for your truth. I pray, Lord, that we would hear it. And Lord, that uh, in our weakness, Lord, you would be strong. And Lord, as I seek to speak in my weakness, you'd be my strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This morning, we're going to be looking at a message entitled, Though Dead, He Still Speaks. Though Dead, He Still Speaks. And what we're going to be seeing here this morning in Hebrews chapter 11 is we're going to be looking at the reality of a man that is an example of God's grace working, where he not only trusts God, but as a result of God working in him and cleansing him, his deeds reflect that in the way that he follows God. We'll see the example of Abel, but as we get started, we're going to look at another aspect of this. I... um, want us to read starting back in verse 35. He says in chapter 10, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Last week, we saw how faith is our title deed. It's taking hold of, in a way you could say spiritually, the legal possession of what is ours in Christ. It's believing God's promises so that those future realities are ours in the present, living out of that daily. We began our journey looking at four statements out of verses one through three. You know, we saw one of them at the beginning of verse one, faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. And then we saw the the third statement, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And that reference in verse two is going to show us, really it's a preview of what is to come starting in verse four. And when we look at the rest of this hall of faith, I heard one man say, it's like it's speaking of the, the family album. It's not just this museum we walk through and look at these people. It's the family album of the people of God. 
And when we look at their lives, we then recognize that God is calling us to live the very same way. He's calling us to trust him. He's calling us to walk out of the reality. So verses one and two, or verse one, is, is really going to be seen in the way that these other people live their life. Starting with Abel today, we're going to see that he experienced this. He experienced this idea of faith is the substance of things hoped for the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. This was seen in his life. This was observed in the way that he followed God. And the fourth statement we didn't really get to yet. And we read in verse three, and we're gonna start there as we get rolling here. In verse three, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So many things here. You know, faith is a substance. Faith is the evidence. By faith, we understand. And notice the order here. He doesn't say understanding um, leads to faith. He says faith leads to understanding. Isn't that interesting? A lot of times we approach that incorrectly, even in the way we look at apologetics, that we need to understand fully in order to have faith, but actually faith is leading us to understand. And in God's economy, this is how he has designed this to work. I was looking at one commentator that really helped me think through some of this, and he put it in some words that I thought were helpful. He said, just as our physical eyesight is the sense that gives us evidence of the material world, faith is the sense that gives us evidence of the invisible spiritual world. He goes on, faith has its reasons. The Bible doesn't recommend a blind leap of faith, but the reasons can't be measured in a laboratory. They have to be understood spiritually. He says, faith extends beyond what we learn from our senses, and the author is saying that it has its reasons. Its tests are not those of the senses which yield uncertainty. And then this last statement, physical eyesight produces a conviction or evidence of visible things. But listen to this. Faith is the organ which enables people to see the invisible order. I was thinking about the implications of this passage. You know, we, we know in Genesis that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and even in verse three of chapter one, let there be light. And we see in, in the psalmist say, for he spoke, or by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And by faith, we begin to understand these realities. You remember when we were talking about, a thought hit my mind. You know, we were talking about knowledge there's one part of knowledge that we call epinosis. It's like a knowledge of experience. It's a knowledge of actually living the Christian life. It's not just a knowledge that we, you know, have on paper. It's a knowledge of walking with God. And when we were walking through that type of knowledge, I mentioned to you, you know, mentors in the past that have told me that we only experience that type of knowledge as we walk by faith. 
It's something that we walk by faith in, and thus we experience God. We walk with him. We know him. Well, in a very real sense, you see a similar concept. Understanding is tied to faith. We don't experience this understanding apart from faith. The word is interesting. It says in uh, Matthew 16, verse 11. In Matthew 16, 11, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Notice what he says. How is it that you fail to understand? That's the word. A perception of something. In, In Mark chapter 7, verse 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? I find it fascinating because you look at another passage like Ephesians 3, 4 that uses the same word for understanding. And he says in Ephesians, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now think about it that way. Understanding that is a spiritual perception. A spiritual perception. I mention that all to you right now because I want you to consider an obvious observation, but remember something. Students that are in school, remember something. When you study under people who have not trusted in Christ or in his sufficient word, do not be surprised if they do not perceive the realities of the universe. That that needs to be fundamental. Because again, natural men do not receive the things of God. And we either believe that or we don't. Do natural men, people apart from the faith, do they have awareness? I remember years ago, I had the blessing of sitting under a man in heaven, a a very well-known preacher, Ron Dunn. And we we were there and there was a big event taking place in the country. It was a political convention of either the Democrats or the Republicans, but it was a big deal. It was just like we go through in political season. I was just a small kid. It was back in the days of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, I think. And, and what, what happened was, is, is Ron Dunn, he looked at us and he said, do you realize that, that what is taking place in this room is of far greater value than what is taking place in that room? And he named the city of that convention. And basically the idea that, do you realize that a young child that has trusted in the things of God has spiritual insight and perception that the most educated of academia would experience apart from their knowledge of Christ. The, the young one, the, 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 it's like the thing in, in the economy of God, the price tags change. Those people that we would esteem now become as those that are foolish in the sight of God. And in the world's eyes, those that would be pitied and those that would be considered as fools through spiritual perception, the price tags flip, and now they are the ones experiencing understanding and perception into the knowledge of God. So we have to remember that. It's important. The Bible teaches us that God created the universe, and we have to remember something. We we can't be surprised. I remember when Columbine, the tragedy of Columbine, took place years ago, and sadly, the first of a multitude of school shootings. 
But I remember reading an article or being exposed to an article where basically the author was saying, don't be surprised when people live out their worldview. And he said, why is it we think it's strange that academia has been teaching students that they are products of chance? And now we are surprised that they're living out of those assumptions, that they're living out of the worldview that says, because I'm not here for purpose, because there is no meaning, no one can tell me there is meaning and can tell me there's absolutes. Worldviews have consequences. And if we reject the knowledge of God, we fall prey and we fall into the consequences of wickedness and ungodliness. And his, if we suppress his truth and unrighteousness, the consequences are devastating. John 1, in the beginning, was the word. We learn about the word, and that, that, that phrase is very consistent and not by accident. It lines up with the very opening of the Bible in Genesis 1. We learned that, that Jesus was the one who created the world and John 1 and Colossians 1 and all of this. We see that while naturalism teaches the world took place by accident, by faith we understand that God created the universe. We understand that this is not by accident, that we're created in the image of God. Students, I, I challenge you and I beg you to consider something, and I believe it with all my heart. When you look at the world, the realities of the world point to the reality of the Imago Dei, that we are created in the image of God. People have longings. People are outraged. Why? Because they're products of muck in the ocean? No, because they're created in the image of their creator. They're created with certain longings. They're created with a desire. You take every group we've ever discovered across the globe, and we've always found one commonality. We've always found religious systems. Why is that? Why would people created by accident always come to the conclusion that there was something supernatural behind their origins? We believe as Christians that it's because we're created in the image of God. And Romans 1 speaks to that reality. But when we deny the creator, when we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, don't be surprised when we become fools, when we deny him. But we see here that God is behind it. And he's behind it. And what happens here is that he speaks of something really interesting in, in the way that it's phrased. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Some take this to mean what we see was not something that comes from pre-existing matter, which is interesting because a lot of modern scientific thought even goes away from the Big Bang and does speak of the Big Bang, but speaks of eternal matter, that which has always existed. It's, it's fascinating that, that that was a thought back at the time. This was written would have been more of the concept of matter that was already there. Some, there's, a, there's a term called creation ex nihilo, which is the idea of creation out of nothing. 
that God created, God spoke things into existence. Some argue that that is implicit here, that that is what is implied. Others say that's true, but not really the point of this. All of this to say is that he's speaking of the reality of God, and it's by faith we have spiritual perception of these truths. Calvin, brilliant scholar, he, he, he believes that it actually, actually is literally in the text so that they became the visible of things not visible. He goes on down and he says, if, if you take the literal of the way this should be translated, the meaning would be so that they became the visible of things not visible or not apparent. Thus, the preposition would be joined to the participle to which it belongs. Hang in there, class. We can do this. <laughs> Besides... If you've, if you've ever read Calvin, he will forget more than I'll ever know. But brilliant, but he goes on. Besides, the words would then contain a very important truth. And here's what he comes out with. That we have in this visible world a conspicuous image of God. And thus the same truth is taught here as in Romans 1.20, where it is said that the invisible things of God are made known to us by the creation of the world they being seen in his works. He goes on, God has given us throughout the whole framework of this world clear evidences of his eternal wisdom, goodness, and power. And though he is in himself invisible, he in a manner becomes visible to us in his works. Amen? Hey, that'll preach. Whether he's right or not on the, the meaning of that passage, that's a beautiful truth. We see here that by faith, we understand. Through faith, God has designed that we understand. It, it, it relates to the faith, and it builds our faith. It's it, it, God's unchangeable promises. He's promised. He's spoken in his word. When we receive it by faith, God gives understanding to these truths. I was reading Stephen Cole on this, and I thought this was helpful. He, he speaks about this reality, and he says, uh, the prevailing current worldview that matter always existed and that the current universe, including man, happened by sheer chance over billions of years is based on blind faith because there's no evidence to support it. The biblical view that the eternal God spoke it into existence is based on faith, but not on blind faith. There's abundant evidence that an incredibly intelligent, intelligent designer created everything, especially human life. You would think that a discovery such as human DNA, which shows amazing design, would cause all scientists to fall down and worship before God. But as Paul explained, sinful men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They become futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts are darkened. And professing to be wise, they become fools. But by faith, we understand. Faith brings understanding. Understanding proportional to faith. Now we go into verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Dylan read out of Genesis chapter four. And I'm going to go back and allude to it. I'm not going to read it again. 
but I think many of you are familiar with the passage. And when we look at Genesis chapter four, it gives us the background. Today, what we're gonna do is we go through verse four is look at three questions, three questions, and then we're gonna end on three applications. Three questions, three applications. The first question that we're gonna look at is, why was Abel's sacrifice considered better? Why was Abel's sacrifice considered better? And there's a lot of thought on this. And uh, by God's grace, we will land where we need to land. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. I'm going to focus on two major views today. There's so many more. If you go back and you look at ancient uh, writers, Josephus, Philo, and all kinds of people, they all had different conclusions as to why his sacrifice was better and more acceptable. We, one common way of looking at this, and I lean on Cole again, I'd written out the way I had uh, phrased it. I, I think it's better put here. He basically says, we're not reading too much into the story to infer that God had made this plain to Adam and Eve after they sinned. Their sin caused them to be ashamed of their nakedness. And so they sewed together fig leaves to try to cover that shame. But God did not accept their fig leaves. Instead, he clothed them with garments made of animal skin. Undoubtedly, at that time, he explained to them four things, Cole says. First, to stand before the holy God, you need a proper covering. Second, Humanly manufactured coverings were not adequate. Third, God would provide the necessary covering apart from their efforts. Fourth, the only acceptable covering for their sin required the death or shedding of blood of an acceptable sacrifice. He finalizes this by saying, Surely Adam had communicated these facts to his sons. They did not think up on their own the idea of bringing sacrifices to God. No, God had clearly revealed to Adam and Eve the necessary and proper way to approach him through a blood sacrifice. They had made this way plain to their sons, but Cain disobeyed while Abel by faith obeyed. That's a very adequate, if not correct, interpretation. It's, it's, if you look in history and you look at modern interpreters, that's probably the more common, although it's close. Some people believe that it's speaking of this. Again, it's the uh, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, that while not in the text, the thought is that God revealed to Cain and Abel what was pleasing to him and that it needed to be through a blood sacrifice, and it was pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We all would believe that that is the substance, the shadow and the substance of the Old Testament into the New Testament. The question is, is it here in this passage? It's the view that uh, John Owen believed. John Owen believed that this was speaking about a blood sacrifice, and I mentioned to him early, I, I'm quoting him a lot today, Calvin didn't believe that's what was going on at all. And Calvin said it like this. He says, first, that Abel's sacrifice was for no other reason preferable to that of his brother except that it was sanctified by faith. For surely the fat of brute animals did not smell so sweetly that it could by its odor pacify God. The scripture indeed shows plainly why God accepted his sacrifice. 
For Moses' words are these, God had respect to Abel and to his gifts. It is hence obvious to conclude that his sacrifice was accepted because he himself was graciously accepted. But how did he obtain this favor except that his heart was purified by faith? Brian Borgman summing up Calvin says it like this, Abel's sacrifice pleased God because he himself was pleasing to God. Gregory the Great quoted here, it is obvious it was not the offerer who received approval because of the offerings, but the offerings because of the offerer. Interesting, because we could all, I mean, even if you take the side of Calvin here, what you say, okay, the emphasis is not on the blood sacrifice. It's on a person who has been accepted by God by faith. It reflects the offerer, not the actual thing that was offered. Even if you go that route, you would, again, hold to the truths of the provision of Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so what you have here is, you could, I mean, again, you're on safe ground to go either way. If you disagreed with, I'm leaning more on the side that what's really emphasized here in the passage, the passage doesn't explicitly say that it's because it was a blood sacrifice. The passage says that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it was offered by faith. I lean more that way, but again, if you disagree with me, that just as long as you don't adopt one of those crazy views, that other one's a good one. I commend you. I want us to look at this. Why was it accepted? If you look at verse 3 and 4, I think it gives us a clue. Look at verse 3 again. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the what? Firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. One thing that's interesting is, is that he brought his offering of the firstborn. And while we might look down on the idea of the fat portions, that was a big deal. It was signifying the best of what is brought. And one thing that many have noted is that it might be evident here that what's really being shown in Genesis 4 is that Abel brought his best. Cain, as a farmer of the ground, many have suggested it was not abnormal for him to bring an offering of the fruit of the ground. Whereas it wouldn't have been abnormal for Abel to bring what he brought. But they say the problem is, is that they surmise that Cain, it's not mentioned here explicitly, that he brought the first fruits of the harvest, but potentially implied that he just brought whatever he brought. In 2 Samuel, do you remember when David says to Aruna, when Aruna was offering the threshing floor for free, 
And he says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So one possibility here, and I believe what he is getting at here, is that there was a unique difference in the offering given by Abel because it came from a heart that had been made right with God. Cain, in his response to the offering and how it wasn't accepted by God, reveals many things within his heart, within Genesis chapter four. But let's keep going. We're gonna come back. Second question. Not only why was Abel's sacrifice considered better, but how was Abel commended as righteous? Now, this is critical. How was Abel commended as righteous? Did he perform a work and God thus satisfied with his work said, you now are righteous? Well, if we say yes to that, it would completely disagree with what we learn from Paul in the New Testament. That a man's not justified by his work, but he's justified by his faith. How was Abel commended as righteous? What is taking place here? The, the two passages I want you to think about as we get started, Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Consider what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jump all the way to Romans 4.9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, now what is happening here? How was he commended as righteous? I, I was looking at a, this baffled me. One of the things that's fascinating in the ESV, it says through which he was commended as righteous. In the New American Standard, it says, which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. In the New King James, it says, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. You see all of these terms pointing to the same reality. And what I believe he's doing is, is he's implying just as Abraham was justified by faith, Abel was justified by faith. In one passage, that I think we often forget in relation to Genesis chapter four is the verses right before it. Genesis 3.15, what was the promise to Eve? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here we see this promise given to Satan, that there's going to be enmity between literally the people of ungodliness and the people of God representing Satan versus the line of Messiah. 
but there would be a descendant that came from the woman that ultimately would give a fatal blow to Satan. Now, I wanna, there's something really fascinating here. I don't know if this is what's going on, but I thought it was fascinating. Look, look at Genesis 4, verse 1 real quick. Genesis 4, verse 1 is at least a very interesting possibility. It says in verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. If you take the literal Hebrew there, it literally says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Some scholars believe that Eve thought when she gave birth to Cain that he was the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3, verse 15. That literally she thought, God, you told me there's gonna be a descendant that comes through my line that ultimately is going to crush Satan. He's gonna give him a fatal blow to his head. If you give a crushing blow to a snake, where do you wanna hit him? In his head. You hit him in his head, he's toast. Fatal blow. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what's going on here, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it? And it's an interesting thought because one thing that I believe is going on is that what would have Eve most assuredly have taught her boys? We are dealing with the effects of sin. And as a result of sin, we are facing the consequences but God in his grace has promised that there will be a deliverer who will come ultimately to defeat Satan. And you say this morning, how in the world do we have any thought as to how Abel could have been justified by faith with the limited knowledge that he had in Genesis chapter four? Listen to what Al Mohler says. We must remember that the moral lessons of the Old Testament come within the context of the storyline of the gospel. The writer draws some applications from these individuals, but he does so while reminding us that the reason these men lived as they did was because they walked by faith looking to a redeemer. Today, we pronounce the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if a person, man, woman, boy, girl here in this room experiences salvation, they do so by looking back to the cross of Christ. Well, how then did our Old Testament brothers and sisters that are saints, how did they come about salvation? Were they saved by their obedience or by their works? May it never be. They were saved not by looking back at the cross. They were saved by looking towards the cross to Messiah. The implication here is that Abel believed that God would do what he said he would do. And the implications is that that future reality compelled him to live differently within the present and due to the change of heart that only God could bring, his life and his worship now manifested the change of what God had done in his life. The third question, how does Abel continue to speak? It's a fascinating verse, isn't it? Though dead, he still speaks. How does he continue to speak? 
Some people say, is it, it, is it his blood crying out from the ground of vengeance towards Cain? Well, you get the sense of blood crying out. You know, in chapter 12, verse 24, this is used. But here, it seems clear that in the context, he continues to speak even though he's dead because his legacy of faith is a testimony and a declaration even to this day. I was reading somebody talk about David Brainerd, the missionary. I went to school at Brainerd Baptist in Chattanooga, Tennessee from fourth to sixth grade. Brainerd Baptist, those were the days. And uh, I, remember, I remember in sixth grade, y'all, I was in Brainerd Baptist gym and I'd, I'd never had a big moment of basketball game. And that, I, I saw this kid, but there's eight seconds left. He threw the ball and I jumped the pass. And it was me and that big wall behind the goal. And I knew I just had to do a layup. And I made a layup and I thought I was Michael Jordan. And if I went in that gym today, it looks like smaller in this room right here. <laughs> Brainerd Baptist. Brainerd Baptist was named after David Brainerd. David Brainerd is, is a famous missionary who who exemplified following God. And I was reading a story where they said, do you realize that it was the biographies written about Brainerd that, that literally it's almost like his, since his death, he has spoken louder than he did in his life. Isn't that awesome? That a man was faithful to go to the mission field and trust God, but the legacy of this man who walked out of the principles and out of the truths of Hebrews 11.1, 1, that that legacy literally has changed the course of history and world missions. That even though he's dead, he still speaks. And Abel speaks to us even this morning. Think about it. He, I mean, if you'd have told Abel, hey man, um, you're getting ready to, to go down to your brother. He's gonna be really bitter and his response to God on how his sacrifice was not acceptable is going to be a vicious, wicked response of rage towards you, and he's going to kill you. But hey, believe it or not, in 2021 on 918 South Broad Street, they're going to be talking about your faith. Do what? I mean, think about the, the, the amazing miracle of Abel's life that even in his death, his life points to a legacy of a man who was justified by faith. And as a result of his justification, it so compelled him to grab hold of future realities, to live differently in the present, to act and live out of his faith. That's what you see going on here. I did a funeral last Thursday. I told you about the man who called me whose wife died. And, and I was reading, and this grabbed me because when I, when I quoted Mueller earlier, there was something else he wrote in there about this section, and, and it, it hit me because I just did this funeral. He said, think about it this way. What will be said at your funeral? Think about it. Let's just imagine that uh, we're all dead next week. You may be thinking, what a horrible thought. It may be the best thought you've had in a while because I pray that it challenges the way you live. What will be said at your funeral? What words are going to make up the content of your eulogy? Are you going to be known as the guy who was really fun, who, who loved Georgia football and Alabama football, who, who was a great guy, who loved to laugh, who just was a funny person? Is that going to be the story of your life? 
Is it gonna be that you left a lot of money to your kids so they, they don't have to pay for college? If that's it, it's a sad life. If that's all there is, it's depressing. But he goes on here. He says, what words are gonna make up the content of your eulogy? How will your life be summarized in 15 minutes of reflection? Hopefully, we will all leave the type of testimony left by Abel. Though he was dead, his life bore witness to the grace and mercy found only in a substitutionary sacrifice. Christians should aspire to leave behind a legacy of faith. They should aspire to leave their eulogist a wealth of material that testifies to the saving power of Jesus Christ, just as Abel did. His faith testified to the greatness of Christ even beyond the extent of his life. So many of us could walk around the room, and not we could talk around the room, or walk around the room, I guess. And I could say, hey, could you tell me uh, just the blessing of a godly family member who's died? We could get some great stories. The blessings of those who've gone before us who left a legacy of faith. Isn't that such a tremendous blessing? Three applications this morning. A lot more than that, but I'm gonna land on three. Number one, we are justified by grace through faith. We are justified by grace through faith. What we're gonna see is the righteous shall live by faith is the quotation out of Hebrews in, in Hebrews 10 that quotes Hebrews Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous, how are we righteous? Hebrews 11, it's pointing to people and they're all examples of those who were justified by grace through faith. And these Christians in Rome, I think he's talking to Christians in Rome. They need to be reminded, why go back to Judaism? Because when we go back all the way to the beginning, when we go all the way back to creation, all the way back to the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the people that you hear about in Judaism class are examples of people who were justified, not by works of the law, but by faith. Justified by grace through faith. This morning, how are you seeking to be justified before God? Are you seeking to be justified by good works, good living, honest approach? Are you good people? just good way of life? Or are you wholly dependent that it's only through the cross of Christ that you can be justified, that you can be declared in right standing with your creator? We're justified by grace through faith. The second application I want you to think about, only those justified can offer up what is pleasing to God. You know, the suggestion we get, we won't know for sure, but I think we can make a strong case throughout the scripture. We see references every time Cain is brought up. It is negative, negative, negative. And what we see here is that those who are not right with God cannot offer up that which is pleasing to him. It only takes place when we have been justified. When we've been justified. He, apart from that, we can't offer up what is pleasing. If we offer up things, they're not acceptable to God. Why? Because God, it's only through Christ, it's only through his covering that we're then enabled to offer up what is pleasing. It's, there's a reason why Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you saved through faith and not of yourselves, comes before Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in 
created in Christ for good works. Why? Because the works flow out of a right position before God. And so we can't offer up what is pleasing until we've experienced forgiveness, until we've experienced justification. And other than that, it doesn't matter all the religious ritual we come up with. It will never be appeasing unto God. This morning, are you trying to go through religious ritual without being justified? You know, it's sometimes these type of statements from preachers that the Holy Spirit sets a light bulb off in the heart of people that have been in church 30 years. And they say, wait a minute, you mean to tell me I've been doing all these things for the last 30 years and I, and I do what I do to earn God's favor? I've never come at it from the angle of doing what I do because of the favor that I've received because of Christ on my behalf? This morning, I plead with you, are you offering up to God what is unacceptable because you've never been made right with God? Consider, have you been justified by faith? But the final application this morning I want you to think about is, by God's grace, once justified, we are now enabled to offer up our lives. Abel, I think, is a picture of what is to come in the sense that what we seem to be looking at in Genesis 4 is a man who full-hearted, wholeheartedly submitted to God offered the best that he had to God, compelled to do it based on the promises of God. But have you ever been more like Cain, if that's indeed what the text is leading us to see? Have you ever been half-hearted in bringing uh, leftovers? Have you ever re-gifted something? Oh, come on now, be honest. Have you ever, have you ever had to go to a party and... Uh, and somebody had just given you something you don't really like, and you think, wait a minute, this isn't too bad. I can wrap this bad boy up right here and give it to them, and everybody will be good, and it'll save me 20 bucks in the process. Well, what is that? that? That's just not, ugh. And y'all are like, oh, that's not good. Isn't it crazy how often we offer up to God that which is not pleasing to him, even as those who've experienced his justification? You know, the, the whole premise of Romans 12 is what? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, not, not those outside the faith. You're in the family. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 4, an hour is coming, and he spoke of what? The Father is seeking, what, worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. We can learn from Abel, by the grace of God, that those who are walking by faith, compelled by the promises of God, not only of what he's done in the past, but what he'll do in the future, are compelled by his grace to worship him wholeheartedly with the first fruits of their lives, with all of their being, with in spirit and in truth. This morning, is it half-hearted? Is it just leftovers? You remember that passage in Amos? I remember growing up singing in choir. I had to sing. My friends all wanted to join the choir. I think we thought there was a lot of pretty girls in the choir, and we joined, and then they all quit it the next day, and my mom would let me quit. It was miserable. I was in that choir for a whole year, and, and I was the tallest kid by like a foot and a half. And I had to stand in the middle of the back 
And uh, I hated it. And my friends loved My friends that quit, they loved laughing while I had to sing in a choir. And, and I remember Miss Smith used to say, your voice is so beautiful when you sing with your heart to God. But you know, Amos says, there's a passage in Amos where the prophet speaking through the, is the mouthpiece of God says, take away from me the noise of your songs. And it's God speaking to his people. That which is not pleasing to God is when we offer lip service to God. When we just throw the leftovers together and offer them up. Abel is an example of how by God's grace, we have hope. We've got hope. God's grace can not only change us and bring us to a place of justification, God's grace can enable us through the power of the Spirit to offer up what is pleasing to God. So this morning, what are you offering up? What are you offering up to God? Half-hearted, wholehearted, in spirit and in truth. So as we close this morning, a lot to chew on. Cain and Abel, Abel compelled by the promises of God, was compelled to act by faith on those promises, and it compelled him to live uniquely and differently in the way that he worshiped God. Cain, due to not having experienced the same reality, revealed in his responses, revealed in his offering, a person who was not right with God, who had a wicked heart, selfish and sinful before God. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you. It's only through Christ. It's only by grace we can ever be in a place where we offer up what is pleasing because it's only because of Christ that we can be accepted. And it's only by the grace of Christ that we can live pleasing to you. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be compelled to see what this life of faith looks like. Lord, teach us as we walk through these stories. I pray, Lord, they would be used mightily by your spirit to drive us to walk by faith day to day in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.